Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Can Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, creators, and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. It refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. Ahali is freed from the binding understanding of kinship, origin, or belief. It's about a culture of being together. Ahali generates a knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So welcome to Ahali Conversations. Publishing has been a fundamental pillar of contemporary art's existence. Whether as incubators for mythology building or becoming settings for communities to emerge, art is impossible to think outside of publications as magazines, books, journals, or today's online forms. Ben Eastham is someone whose work wedges exactly on this territory. He is one of the founding editors of the White Review, a former editor of the Art Review magazine, and the current editor-in-chief of Art Agenda. We're gonna hear his take on art publishing as a creative practice, writing and editing as a means of re-scripting and repositioning works of art, and his first-hand take, on the Notorious Power 100 list by the Art Review magazine. Thanks so much, Ben, for joining us. Uh, ben Eastham is with us today. He's uh, editor-in-chief of Art Agenda and founding editor of the White Review and former editor of the Art Review. And this series of conversations started off during the COVID-19 pandemic, in a way, trying to not respond to the situation, perhaps, but kind of think through what the aftermath of the situation can be and also think through our priorities with regards to questions of exhibition making, cultural production, modes of collaboration, and also modes of dissemination and distribution of ideas. And Ben's uh, essay for the Art Review, which touched somewhere very close to me actually, because Ben, you were uh, talking about the importance of mediated response and content with regards to art, artistic production and exhibitions, not only, but also thinking through possibilities of experiencing art in context other than the museum or the gallery walls. And since you've been engaged with publishing for a long time, perhaps we can start from that. Because for me, this kind of secondhand is not I don't mean it as a derogatory term, but this mediated encounter, so to say, with art for a long time has been the fundamental access to artistic knowledge. And whether through magazines or books or whatever we could get hold of pre-internet and during the start of the internet, that would be the realm where someone like me and most of my generation here in Turkey, I would argue, had access to contemporary artistic knowledge. And that, in a way, was a big shaping force to our productions. And you touch from something similar. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a very interesting place to start, actually. What I was writing about in that essay was precisely, as you just introduced it, the fact that my own first engagements with what we call contemporary art, or what is 
captured within the sphere of contemporary art or generally considered to exist within that sphere came secondhand or through mediations or collaborations, really through my interest as a, a teenager and even before that, very much in music, also in literature. And I guess just finding out about artists through album covers or through references and poems and through that from reading magazines. So my first real engagements with contemporary art would have been in the pages of magazines that I could go to the shop in my local small town and buy. And I guess my engagements with contemporary art have always been mediated through that and have always in a way been shaped by that sense of belonging to a community that was mediated through a magazine, for instance, or or through another medium. So I've always been quite protective of that, actually. And it's interesting that you use that phrase secondhand, because that's an interesting thing as well, how we treat these mediated engagements with art. Are they secondhand? Are they degraded by having been mediated? Or are they perhaps complemented and, and complicated in ways that are more interesting? So I've always been really interested in that relationship. What happens when a work of art moves out of the context in which it's understood purely and independently as a work of art. So the, the classic example being a, a white cube space mm-hmm. where it exists in there, it's insulated from the world. You go into that space, you see it, you come out. The two different experiences, they're very clearly delineated. But when you're reading it in the pages of a magazine, not only because it's coming to you in this different medium, but also because it's surrounded by text and then it's surrounded by adverts and it's surrounded by other things and also it's part of your life I would walk to the shop and then I'd buy the magazine and I'd read it at home so all of these things were really important to me and I was a little bit that text came out of this frustration when the closures happened because of the confinement that people were were suddenly lamenting their inability to go and look at a painting and appreciate the texture its brushstrokes and and so on all of which is I understand but I've always been suspicious of this idea that the only way to engage with art is through presence, essentially. And I'm suspicious of it because I think it's aristocratic in some ways, because I I think then you're really restricting who can have a a quote-unquote legitimate experience of art to people who are able to go and see it in person. And I'm very suspicious of that. And also because it, it made me question as well what kind of a professional world was based on this idea of having to be somewhere and that led on to, to other, other reflections, I guess. Yeah. So I think before we move on, on a kind of retinal level, it generates the mediated encounter generates also other images. So to say, I'm, I'm thinking of a detail of a painting in a, his art history book or something like that, or a video still representing a video, which becomes an image. So it also becomes something else. But more so on a narrative level, I think the addition of text is not a mere description or is not only criticism, but it generates, it adds on to that kind of cultural stack by, I mean, every translation is a kind of rewriting, especially in art criticism, the reflection becomes almost a re-scripting or rewriting of the work. And then it generates, in a way, further cultural production that kind of builds on upon the particular exhibition or artwork or artist practice that author is kind of referring to or building on. And in that sense, that idea of stacking or that idea of building upon, but also riffing outside was, I noticed is, we will share this in the show notes, but you have a video 
work that was in response to an exhibition at the Hayward Gallery, which oh, yeah. almost you are within that exhibition space. So there is a mediation of that, so to say, in your words, auratic and aristocratic body that moves around the exhibition, but you generate some other narrative on top of it, which then becomes something else. So it is at once the documentation of the exhibition, but it's also something else. And that for me was very intriguing. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you, you bring that example up, actually. And I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but that's precisely what it's doing. There's so much there that I'm sure we'll return to, but this idea of scripting, I guess, is really important to me. And the fact that every work is, as you say, inflected by what it's surrounded with and that things work together and are entangled in ways that happen in it in a magazine, for example, that you have this narrative that runs through placing things into relation within the pages of that magazine changes the works within them in ways that I'm really interested in. So I always like that. And I've always thought of art criticism as participating in that process, not just isolating a work, reading it independently of everything that's going on, but trying to integrate it into a script of some kind or rather than producing a single script, trying to create a system of relations within which that object or experience can be understood. And I think those processes are means by which you can enrich an artwork or lend it further meaning, or as you say, move it outside of of its space, rather than try and reduce it to something simple. And one thing I'm always trying to work against, I think, in art criticism is the reduction or just that appreciation is the reduction of a work to a single sound bite or a sentence that can be picked up and taken away and moved out of context. I like the idea of enriching, complicating, complexifying, and in that making it available to people because what that process aims to do is to demonstrate that things change depending on where they're encountered, by whom they're encountered, by what they're surrounded. And that's a way of saying that every experience of a work is legitimate. It's not just that you should go and see a work and then, you know, work it out, have this single reaction, you know, you've got it, you understand it, that's it. And that meaning translates whether you see it in Istanbul or whether you see it in the West Coast of Ireland. I don't believe that. Me neither. And maybe that idea of the ensemble or that idea of the relations that emerge out of, in this example, out of a magazine, is not only the relationships between the content, but also probably more indirect, but nevertheless, some form of community around that publication. And as someone who's been also setting up very early on a magazine, which is the White Review, but also now in a way being in a leading position of editorship in both printed and online outlets, How do you see that kind of setting up of a community or how do you see that transforming and transforming a community around this nature? It's a really good question. You know, one thing you mentioned your work and one thing that I would, where maybe there's a crossover in some of the things that you've done is that in some senses, it's about creating a space, if that makes sense. I mean, if I talk about the White Review, which is a magazine that I set up with a a good friend when we were in our mid-20s, And we were living in London. He now runs a a publishing house called Fitzgeraldo Editions. But we were in our mid-20s. We were living in London. We were both working jobs that we didn't find that satisfying. We weren't very well paid. 
we couldn't get our own writing published <laughs> or not in the ways that we wanted to. You might get a commission to write these really short, bland pieces on bland books or bland exhibitions. And we were frustrated about that. So the only way of addressing it felt like setting up our own space, really, and creating something that would give us the opportunity to to create a space in which we could put things that we liked. And, and there were a ton of things that we liked that we didn't think were being picked up in the UK. There wasn't a space in the in the publishing industry at that time. A lot of it was translated fiction because we realized that English people are really bad at reading a second language, so no one knows what's going on. <laughs> so it was quite easy to pick up these really great authors and to to get them into this magazine on we had no budget. So that wasn't really about creating a space. And I was interested in how you do that. My background was I'd studied literature and philosophy, but I was also working in, in contemporary art a little bit. And my interests were lay in music. I'd also worked as a journalist for a long time by then, or for, the, not for a long time. My job at the time was at the BBC as a journalist. And Jacques, the guy I set it up with, had his own set of interests. And this was just a place that we could put all of these different things. And that in itself taught me a lot about what happens if you just put a bunch of stuff that you're interested by in the same place, even if it doesn't feel that coherent. Mm -hmm. um, and then also the idea that that space becomes something physical. The only way we had no money to, you know, we used to bike the copies around to people. And the only way we could sell them really was by having parties. So we'd set up parties or readings or performances and we'd sell beers at the performances and then we'd sell copies of the magazines and then you realize that generates its own community so all of those things taught me quite a lot about yeah how those how those things can build in or, or layer on top of each other as you said yeah uh, i mean i call them settings or setting a setting which i think is like definitely very much related to the same ethos but it's really nice to hear like also the early days one thing i'm curious especially now that we've entered the zone of the wider review is the magazine is still continuing but somehow you handed over that and that's maybe also something worth talking about i mean you built this setting you built a community around it and you kind of make it happen and like how does the process of handing it over or letting it go happen for you or was it totally organic it's a really good question and it's something we thought about a lot so we set it up it would be 10 years old now, just coming up to 10 years old. And, you know, it was set up to be this space that didn't exist at the time. But as Jacques and I, you know, get older and we become more almost accidentally integrated into the art world, the publishing world, and we were doing other jobs to keep ourselves going, you start to think that it needs to be, the idea of having that space was that it was run by young people who were starting out and that it had a different voice. And we didn't feel like we could keep it going. Those things get so stale so quickly. And I didn't want it to become this, another magazine that does the same thing as everything else. So we did think about stopping it after 20 issues. And that was what Jack and I talked about. You know, Maybe it was just this thing that was of this time in London, it made sense then, it had this community. And I'm also quite comfortable with the ideas that, the idea that things come in and they move out Nothing has to be forever. And really it was just organic. It was, we had a very good junior editor called Francesca Wade. 
we thought maybe could take this on in a different direction and bring in new people. It was clear to us that there was a lot going on in London that was maybe a younger generation than us that was interesting that we wanted to support. And also, I think having done all the work of setting up this structure and having an infrastructure, and by this time we had some funding, we were supported by state funds, but also we had enough of a kind of a very basic commercial infrastructure to keep it going. Mm-hmm. That having done all of that work, it would be crazy to ask someone to spend another six, you know, or it felt like something you could just pass on to someone else and let them take, do what they wanted. So it was a, it was a combination of factors, I guess. Yeah. And do you still follow or are you still like, do you occasionally become a guest maybe, or do you write or are you now more? Yeah. So Jack and I are still the, it's, so it's a charity. It's set up as a, a nonprofit. So we're still the directors with the current editor. So we kind of oversee it. We help out. We do a little bit of editorial work when we're asked to, but uh, really we leave it to them. And I guess with this, it's a strange one as well, because you never expect when you start something that, that you'll be the, the kind of old, boring person that they call when <laughs> they need to, you know, get some money off someone. So you become this person, which was totally unexpected. And I only get called when there's, there's a problem. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, dealing with those different roles is part of it, I suppose. Questions of closure or continuation and how to hand over was something that also keeps my mind busy. So thank you for like elaborating on that in particular. But one of the other things that your essay in the art review touched upon was also this, the kind of rapid shift towards dissemination of some form of content online by art institutions in response to the lockdown. And suddenly this proliferation of, in a way, online material. And you were approaching it from a more positive angle, which I totally appreciate. But also I somehow sometimes think whether it's like, are they really adding up to the stack as I was trying to explain, or are they becoming this kind of proliferation of data, which we feel less and less able to access almost by the increase? How do you feel about how certain institutions in your observation responded to this kind of shift to the online presence? Yeah, I think I think it's a really good question. And one thing that probably I, I'd have, my attitudes would have shifted a little bit since publishing that piece for precisely this reason that it was quite exciting, I thought, at the start of the confinement that suddenly all of this really great, uh, you know, artist moving image material particularly was available online. And I found that quite exciting, you know, all these things that I couldn't access before. And also bound up, I think, with having time as well, which suddenly there was this, you know, I had time. I think certainly over the recent weeks, it's it's come to feel like this flood of information and it's not very well distinguished. And I think there were some institutions that were quick to work out this idea of video program, you know, or artists moving image programs. But suddenly it felt like everyone had to do it and everyone was doing the same thing. And there was no differentiation. And this is maybe the time when we could move back when this idea of mediation becomes really important. The ones that worked well felt like they were very well curated. The pieces were actually thought about what was going out, how one piece might relate to another. So I think Metro Pictures did quite a good film program where there was actually a thread linking the works that they were releasing once every week. 
there was also information available around the works. So it didn't just feel like you were just being fed these things about which you knew nothing. And I think that's the key thing again is it's great to have all this information available, but it needs to be mediated. It needs, you know, someone to either be introducing it personally on screen perhaps, or, you know, it needs to be text available about it, or it needs to be integrated into a set of relations like an online exhibition or a screening program that makes sense so that there are things to relate it to. And that's what can be exciting, I think, is when you start making these connections. But when you just start receiving work completely independently of everything else, that's when it becomes problematic because it's, again, this idea of treating something as as if it had no context and it could just be sending it digitally removes it from all context. And that that's where things become, yeah, where they just lose so much, I think. So that's what I, I think we need to be wary of. So I, I think you touched a good point, especially with regards to social media as well. I mean, that's in the beginning, what we were talking about, a kind of, in a sense, more careful, but also organic formation of a setting of a community versus the abundance of related or unrelated things that we encounter, for example, in social media. And that, that really, I think, resonates probably with all of us. But maybe uh, since we touched on the responses of art institutions and galleries, your forthcoming book, which is not available yet, so I didn't get to <laughs> check it out, but it's called The Imaginary Museum. And I've only been able to uh, read a short description of it. But maybe it's a good point to talk a little bit about that, if you like. Uh, yeah. And the title itself is already kind of suggestive. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? I think it, it does actually follow on quite neatly from what we've been discussing. It was a book that started off as a commission for a, for a long essay. And I wanted to find... The commission for the long essay was... It came from a literary paper in the UK called The Times Literary Supplement. And I think they wanted me to write a kind of some way of kind of introducing contemporary art to a, a literary audience. So a, an audience that has a good understanding of culture, but isn't professionally engaged with it, let's say. And I thought about what that might look like. And, and I've always been interested by writers like Calvino. And I wanted to find a structure in which it might be possible to talk about works of art that wasn't just a list of you know, works of art that then I would describe why they're important. And also wasn't just, I didn't want to be this kind of didactic, you know, I, me delivering my opinion about what contemporary art is or means or these things being great and these things being bad. Mm-hmm. So I, I came up with this idea that I would construct an imaginary museum, uh, this museum of the mind. And it's based a little bit on, on the video you were talking about, this idea that objects occupy architectures or that you can use an architectural space to remember objects. So I built this fantastic museum, which would be a little bit like Cedric Price's Fun Palace or something, like full of movable walls and traps and fire escapes and things like this. And then I would walk the reader through this museum and we'd encounter various artworks and I would deliver a little bit of a potted history of it as if it was a tour guide. But in doing so, we'd get lost in the museum. I'd get confused about the architecture. And then we'd encounter people going through the museum who would contradict me. So we'd bump into a curator who would tell the reader that I'm wrong and that he's right, or a security guard would accuse me of having broken in somewhere. So the whole idea was to create this context in which 
each engagement with every work of art is contingent on the context in which it's been experienced. And also is that my authority as a as someone who is talking about these works could always be challenged by other people in the space. I wrote most of it actually last summer in, in Athens and then I was just tidying it up in February when the confinement happened and suddenly it felt like we all had to imagine our own museums into being. So that became interesting as well, actually thinking about what it means to, to store works of art in our heads and what relations we put them into ourselves. And, and one of the fun things about this project and why I quite enjoyed writing it was because I would get to invent my own kind of relations between works and also related to what we were talking about earlier it was important to me that in the in this imaginary museum it wasn't just what you'd call canonical artworks you know it might be kind of things that were important to me that no one else could possibly know the value of but that would be an object that's of sentimental value you'd call it I suppose so that there would be all these different relations and they're not the obvious ones of, you know, Pete Mondrian leading to Mark Roscoe or something. I don't know, all the, the kind of conventional art historical linear connections that you make between things. But rather would be these strange connections between me meeting someone who is a friend and they would have a relationship to the artwork I was then describing and then me, me meeting this person would make me think differently about this artwork. So that was the idea, really. It was in the large part, actually, to explore what we've been talking about, this idea of how to construct relations between things, how the meaning of artworks is not independent, alienated, abstract, but instead predicated on these systems of relations. And how I think everyone who engages with contemporary art should feel confident in bringing those things into their, to their experience for work of art and not feeling intimidated by the sense that they don't understand it or they don't come from the right intellectual background to, understand, to, to get it or that it's not meant for them. That was, yeah, that was kind of the idea. I can't wait to read it. And it seems to me that it's somehow also inhabiting in between space itself. I mean, it's on the one hand, sounds like a work of, work of fiction, but also it's uh, maybe... Uh, curatorial work in disguise or things like that. And I was also particularly uh, happy to hear that it was in response to a more uh, literary community because I tend to notice, especially with regards to contemporary art, other fields of cultural production may tend to become even more reactionary to contemporary art than someone who's just encountering the works. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you get what I mean. So in that sense, that in-between space sounds super interesting. Would it be published as a novel? It's being published as an essay, I suppose. But yeah, it, it very much fits in. And I, I really wanted to complicate those boundaries as well. And I, I'm always wary of saying blur boundaries because it's such a horrible phrase and it's, it's so overused and that's not what I mean. But I, the idea of occupying an in-between space is much closer. And I, I think by that as well, I always want to bring art into, into other structures, into life or something. You know, I, I hate this treatment of art as somehow removed from all, not only all other intellectual disciplines, but everything else that happens in one's life or other forms of culture. And I think a lot of the time, the reasons that those kind of boundaries are put up are commercial or 
there are people protecting their jobs or my own experience of art has never been like that that it's this thing which can be removed from everything else which has nothing to do with music that's being made that has nothing to do with literature that's being written that has nothing to do with the social lives that people are leading so i'm always suspicious of that and i guess even on the contrary for me as well sorry yeah i mean the opposite you know it's something that very much comes out of those things so having that in between form was a, i guess a way of, of trying to formalize that that idea of it being mixed up with everything and being playful as well you know there's this seriousness around art criticism that i think can be so off-putting isn't even strong enough that i i think is lazy sometimes and uh And again, feels very defensive, like, you know, art can't survive if it's not, if people don't talk about it in a way that's, it's, that's obscure. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. I don't like that tendency. Yeah, this may be a huge question, so I don't know how much we would want to go into that. But what you are suggesting in terms of this kind of putting up these walls, and uh, what you were earlier saying about valuation of the auratic experience and uh, questions of accessibility also reminds me of art's relationship to power and since yeah. you were involved with art review i can't help but think about the power 100 uh, <laughs> list <laughs> i don't know if you were involved with that or uh, i was involved in it yeah it's a funny one it's all anyone ever asks about art review funny enough <laughs> <laughs> It's, uh, I don't know, I, I think like, I suppose I can speak a little bit more honestly about it now because I'm not the editor there anymore. The one thing I always really liked about it was that if you don't work in the art world, it's really confusing how it all works. And there is this myth that artists succeed because of some inherent talent and that it's a meritocracy. And you have only to work in the art world for like two minutes to realize that that's total nonsense. I always quite like the idea of, in this quite, you know, very reductive, blunt way, actually anatomizing power and saying, look, this is, this is where influence lies and being quite honest about it. And people used to get very angry about that because I think there are a lot of people in the art world who would prefer that that power was hidden mm. and that this myth was maintained that actually, you know, curators are absolutely independent and galleries only pick up the best artists. Everyone knows that, that is not true or it's not true on the infrastructural level. So in a way, I quite enjoyed that. And it was a way of thinking about the way that that world operates that I think can be useful. Like, I think the problem is that some people used to think of it as celebratory. Like it was, you know, like there would be a big crowning ceremony for number one. And what the one thing I can say was that within Art Review, it was never thought of in that way. And actually it was thought of as this much more kind of critical list, but, But some people loved it, you know, some, some people would be thrilled if they were on it and then we'd get letters if they fell off it, you know, if they were <laughs> up hundred. But I, I like that idea that you, you expose it a little bit because I think that's important. And I really think it's important for people who want to pursue their own projects as well or, or to, to know that the way that the world, that world works, the infrastructures are there is power and it's very concentrated and it operates in certain ways that are very oblique to people outside it. But once you've seen that, you can see how things work. And I think that can actually be very encouraging for people who can understand either ways to negotiate that power, to find their own spaces within it or to create spaces outside it. And you do need to have an understanding of how those things 
work. Otherwise, I think it can be enormously demoralizing because you either don't understand why your work isn't being recognized by these arbiters or gatekeepers, or you're blind to the privilege that entitles you to get there in the first place, if you see what I mean. So yeah. I always enjoyed those. The discussions around it were interesting. No, totally. I think this was a really good outline of where it stands. And thank you for being candid about it. And I think that's kind of access to knowledge, but at the same time producing that knowledge or allowing access to that knowledge, but also at the same time producing that knowledge is interesting. But there is also a kind of double-edged situation where by creating that list, it's also becomes an assertion of power. But I always, I at least personally feel that I was somehow getting the humor between the lines and also the certain kind of, in a way, at least the intention was not particularly one of asserting those power structures, but more of exposing them. But thanks so much for elaborating. Maybe from here we can move on because you already touched on the shrouded vision when you are starting off. And most of our audience, audience is not a good word, but are also at pretty much early points finding their way into cultural production. And some of them may be interested in writing, curating and editing. Some of them are maybe more like working in art and design. Do you have any maybe pointers or anything you want to share with people in their early days of being engaged with contemporary art? Yeah, it's difficult. I don't know. I think the best advice just is to do it and don't worry about making mistakes or getting it wrong. Don't worry too much about reception. And yeah, my only thing was my own experience. And I think starting the White Review, we did so much stuff wrong, but we had no idea. So it was fine. <laughs> and then it was only later that we realized that we should have been doing these things much better. And, you know, we could have done this and that better. And you just learn when you're doing it. And it's better just to start and make mistakes. And also, I think just probably don't listen to people like me. Like, I think if, I'd, if we'd listened to everyone who told us what to do when we were starting the White View, we'd have never got started because there was so much advice about this and that. You just have to do it and work it out. Yeah. And just make it fun as well. I think if you're starting anything and it's going to take up, particularly if it's something that you're not going to get paid for or paid very well for, and you're going to have to do things on the side as we did when we were starting, just jobs to get by, then if it's not fun, you won't keep doing it. If you don't enjoy it, it's impossible to get up every morning and work every evening and do it on weekends. So unless you just really enjoy it, there's an aspect of it that you you just want to do, then don't start it because you won't be able to continue it. Fantastic. This was episode four of our Highly Conversations. Ben's remarks reminded us how integral publishing is to contemporary art. And it's just not as a medium to convey a certain story or a certain documentation, but actually taking part in forming the culture around art. After all, no medium is just a medium, and I hope that applies to podcasting as well. I want to thank you for joining Ahali. Make sure you check out the episode notes to find out about the works that we discussed in this episode. And you can also visit us at ahali.online for further information. And please feel free to get in touch if you'd like to join our live gatherings and Q&A sessions with our guests. So hope to see you next time. Thank you.